You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. And so we are up to episode 14 now of our series Understanding God's Righteousness, presented by Brother Jim Dillingham from the Cranston Ecclesia in the United States of America. This episode, number 14, is called The Nazarite Law of Separation To and Separation From. The principle of separation is demonstrated in the law of the Nazarite in its pursuit of identification with the high priest. There is a reversal of separating from to separating to. When the First Kingdom age traditions to the ecclesial age with our new rituals for high priest identification, there is also a prophetic nature to the Nazarite law that has a very significant application to the current generation of the enlightened community. Hope you enjoy. God bless. This will be the 14th uh, class in the series um, addressing understanding God's righteousness. Our current sub-series in our pursuit of this study centers on balancing the principles of separation and inclusion, or as the scripture expresses this, separating from and separating to. We've prepared a foundation recognizing that divine principles have to be balanced, and recognizing that balance can sometimes be quite challenging, as was the case in relation to Israel's decision to honor their promise of peace to the deceptive Gibeonites rather than honor God's command for the extreme separation for driving out or annihilating the Canaanites. We also recognize two of the avenues of separating from that are required of the enlightened community currently. Separating from doctrinal contradictions to the terms of our Creator's righteousness and also separating from behavioral contradictions to the terms of our Creator's righteousness, but recognizing there can be other divine principles that have to be balanced in particular sets of circumstances. God's righteousness is not so simple that the same course is assured in every situation. And this is rather obvious in how God applies a final judgment for some as opposed to redirection for another as in the execution of Achan and his entire family and even his animals, as opposed to forgiving King David and merely applying significant judgments against him without requiring his execution. So we began to consider the defining ritual for the principle of separation under the laws of the kingdom of God. This is the Nazarite vow which is defined as a procedure for separating to God, requiring a separation from a highly appropriate for particular issues. We also noted that God's truths and principles 
never change. Therefore, reviewing the lessons concerning the principle of separation within the laws of the first kingdom age have to have an application during any divine dispensation, including the ecclesial age, despite not being required or even invited to offer a Nazarite vow. Uh, we also began to consider how the abstinence uh, of these four points of Nazarite separations from, in order to identify our, oneself with the high priest, actually are completely reversed in our ecclesial age with those same separation from issues being requalified as separation to issues in our pursuit of being identified with our new high priest, Jesus Christ. We have yet to uh, consider items three and four uh, separation points in this regard. So far, we've noted the parallel between the Nazarite separation requirement of no alcohol consumption and the focus on divine dedication and service during the Nazarite vow and how that parallels the requirements of the high priest in the context of the uh, vineyard consumption. We also noticed how the consumption of alcohol, particularly wine, as we, uh, uh, as wine is, is a great product, is not a separation issue in the ecclesial age, uh, I should say a separation from issue in the ecclesial age, but a separation to issue due to our required participation in the memorial service remembering the death of our Messiah, our high priest, and that reconciliation to God that was achieved through his death. So now uh, we need to move on to the third separating from issue imposed by the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite man or woman pursuing a separation to Yahweh had to separate themselves from all dead bodies, even including their father, mother, uh, brother, or sister. This particular issue of separation is shared with only one other person in the entire enlightened covenant-bound community during the, that first kingdom of God, the high priest. The priests, the physically flawless male descendants of Aaron between the ages of 30 and 50, were permitted to touch uh, only the dead bodies of their father, mother, brother, or unmarried sister. Unlike the Nazarite man or woman, um, and also unlike the high priest. We read this in Leviticus chapter 21. We'll read a couple of sets of verses, uh, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say unto them, there shall none be defiled for the dead among his people, but for his kin that is near unto him. That is for his mother, for his father, for his son, for his daughter, and for his brother, and for his sister, a virgin that is nigh unto him, which has no husband, has had no husband. For, he, uh, for her he may be defiled, but he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people, to profane himself. Dropping down to verse 10. And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes. 
neither shall he go into any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or for his mother. This distinction will also be true of the mortal priests in the restored kingdom of God. Um, we read of the prophecies of that restored kingdom beginning in Ezekiel 40 through chapter 48, and the requirements for those priests are listed in Ezekiel chapter 44. Uh, in verse 25 it says, And they shall come at no dead person to defile themselves, but for father or for mother, or for son, or for daughter, or for brother, or for sister that has no husband, they may defile themselves. But, of course, the high priest in the restored kingdom of God will be Jesus Christ. There are no limitations for who he may touch. And, of course, he did touch the physically unclean during his ministry, uh, which, like the priest, began when he was 30 years old. But when Jesus touched the unclean, and he most definitely made physical contact with the unclean, with the, with the dead, lepers, those with a bodily issue, when he touched them, he did not automatically become unclean. Those unclean became clean and lost their capacity to defile others with uncleanness. The dead 12-year-old daughter of Jairus came back to life as Jesus touched her and told her to arise. Jesus did not have to touch the, de the, the, uh, the dead or uh, the diseased defiled in order to heal them. And that's obvious from the incident with the servant of the centurion at Capernaum. Side note, I really think he was Cornelius in an earlier military assignment prior to Caesarea, but that's, a, that's another issue. Jesus healed that servant of the centurion from a distance, without touching. That physical contact for healing was not necessary, and yet was a very common component of the master's healing procedure. I believe we've addressed previously in these classes the balancing issue within the laws of the, that first kingdom of God that, that provide an answer to why Jesus would not become physically defiled. But the opposite would occur. The physically defiled became cleansed. Uh, so let's just look at that. In uh, Leviticus 6, uh, we read concerning the altar. Speak unto Aaron and to his sons, saying, well, the altar, the altar burnt offering, it, not the altar of incense. Uh, sons saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed uh, before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest that offers it for sin shall eat it. In the holy place, place shall it be eaten. In the court of the tabernacle of the congregation, whatsoever shall touch the flesh thereof shall be holy. Now, first of all, we know very well that sin offering uh, was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We read this in Hebrews chapter 9. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That sin that he had on the cross, of course, was what he was born with, that sin nature that we bear no guilt for whatsoever, but does require a cleansing 
he will come a second time without that. Uh, but he was a sin offering. And under the law, touching the flesh of the sin offering conferred holiness. Whosoever shall touch the flesh thereof shall be holy. And I, also in reference to the altar itself, Exodus 29, um, beginning to verse 36, And you shall offer every day a bullock for a sin offering for atonement, and you shall cleanse the altar when you've made an atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days shalt thou shalt make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever touches the altar shall be holy. Once again, we see this physical contact um, uh, application conferring holiness, this direct contact. And, uh, of course, uh, we can identify that altar as Jesus Christ. We are told in Hebrews 13, uh, picking at verse 10, we have an altar, we of the ecclesial age, have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle, in other words, the Aaronic priesthood in the previous First Kingdom age, verse 11, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Therefore, uh, wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. So uh, the sin offering when the blood was actually brought into the tabernacle, uh, which was for the high priest or for the nation, the other four sin offering, well, uh, the other three sin offering uh, where there was blood, the fourth, of course, the fourth or sixth, the fourth other one, the sixth total uh, had no blood. That was the uh, fine flower for the totally destitute Israel, Israelite. But the, uh, the first two, the high priest nation, that blood was actually brought into the sanctuary. When that was done, the priesthood could not eat of that sin offering. Ordinarily, that's how they made their living, from uh, the food, from the offerings, portions of God's offering they got for themselves. But the that animal, the remaining, uh, uh, God defines six divisions of that carcass, are taken outside the camp and burned to ashes. There is no benefit given to the priests. But in the kingdom age, we eat from that altar. We have the bread and the wine, eating the flesh of Christ, that sin offering. And we, uh, uh, therefore, that altar uh, was a shadow of the substance of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the Christ altar, a burnt offering. We also read the same thing in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar. So by, by eating the uh, memorial bread and the memorial wine, uh, we are partakers in that Christ altar where only unleavened bread could ever be offered by command of God. Um, 
And so we, we use unleavened bread for memorial service, as Jesus did at that last Passover he participated in. Uh, but interestingly also, that Christ altar um, has seven days of sin offerings made for that bronze appliance representing our Messiah. And on the eighth day, it can be used for the entire congregation. Now we're going to see this, as we've already seen, this pattern of seven within a pattern of eight. We're going to see it applied in the, in the Nazarite um, uh, laws as well. Uh, but just make a note of this, uh, that seven days of sin offerings for the altar, allowing it to be most holy, or giving it that status. And, uh, and on the eighth day, it can be used for the entire congregation, and anyone coming in direct physical contact with that altar automatically becomes holy. So let's once again briefly note this reversal between the first kingdom age and the ecclesial age. Uh, we've noted this holiness by touch with the altar and the sin offering when we consider the issue of physical holiness and the status of divinely physically div of a divinely physical unclean status in relation to the current pandemic. Uh, this issue, this lesson centered um, on how a physically unclean state, therefore a separation from God, was contagious, where anyone touching something divinely unclean automatically became not only unclean, but also an uncleanness host. And anything they physically touched also became unclean, as well as another independent uncleanness host. But holiness, the divine state of being divinely clean, only could be achieved by a direct physical contact with those shadow representations of our Messiah, the Christ altar burnt offering and the flesh of the sin offering. Matter of fact, if you want to review this uh, issue in, uh, as the way God presents it to the priests in Haggai chapter 2, you'll see God asking them these questions uh, to highlight this, this issue of contagiousness of uncleanness, but not for cleanness. It's a direct contact only. That physical uncleanness experienced by touching a dead body should be understood as a separation from God, a loss of that physical holiness state. And this was forbidden to the high priest under the laws of the first kingdom of God, as well as the Nazarite, pursuing that identification with the high priest. There's a powerful emphasis of this physical defilement contact with death in the Nazarite law, in the observation that even if one accidentally uh, without any personal intention, came in contact with a dead body, that the term of their Nazarite vow was immediately ended and had to begin again. We read this uh, also back in, in Numbers chapter 6, but picking up at verse 8. All the days of his separation, he's holy unto the Lord. And if any man die very suddenly by him, and he has defiled the head of his consecration... Then he shall shave his head in the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day shall he shave it. Make note of that. And verse 10. And on the eighth day 
He shall bring two turtles, two turtle doves, or two young pigeons to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, of course, that's where all the offerings were brought uh, to be killed, was the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, that Christ door. Verse 11, And the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering, to make an atonement for him, for he for that he sinned by the dead, and shall hallow his head that same day, that eighth day. And <clears throat> verse twelve, and he shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of his separation, and shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering, but the days that were before shall be lost because his separation was defiled. So, first, uh, through no conscious choice, a Nazarite man or woman becomes physically defiled by accidentally coming in contact with a dead body. They are still divinely unclean and absolutely have to go through a cleansing process that involves a sin offering and a burnt offering to achieve an atonement, despite suffering no guilt uh, assigned for a guilty transgression. That defiled Nazarite must pursue that restoration of the physical state of holiness. All the hair on their head is shaved on the seventh day of this eight-day procedure. Now, this particular Nazarite process, this highly focused lesson on a separation to and a separation from, also has a prophetic nature in how all of creation will go through this cleansing process due to being defiled by the physical condemnation of death seven days before. Do we remember Hopefully you remember the pattern of seven within a pattern of eight that we considered in class 10. How our Messiah was the seventh, uh, scripturally, historically, to participate in a resurrection on the seventh day, Sabbath afternoon, which was the first resurrection category. And then a short while later, just a few hours later, the eighth to participate in a resurrection on the next, and therefore qualifying as an eighth day. But that was, of course, the second resurrection category, from mortality to immortality. And then how this projects the two resurrections of the saints, with the first being in the beginning of the seventh divine day, seventh millennium, and the second being in the beginning of the eighth divine day, that eighth millennium. And then how that pattern of seven within a pattern of eight is presented in strobe-like fashion through a number of divine rituals and laws, all in the context of both salvation and divine acceptability. Well, this Nazarite example is yet another example of that extensive pattern, and its shadow prophesies exactly the same events. That shaving of the head the physical representation of the Nazarite, which could be, you could see a person and just imagine right away they're probably a Nazarite due to that extensive amount of hair, uh, uncut and 
probably rather unkempt. It's kind of hard to keep that uh, uh, in good condition when you have that much hair. That, that head of his or her consecration parallels how this shaving parallels how all the earth will be shaved in the seventh day. At the introduction of that seventh day, the millennial kingdom, there will be earthquakes all over this planet that will result in an extreme devastation and loss of life. This is prophesied directly in many places in Scripture. Uh, we have uh, reviewed the prophecy of the kingdom in the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 2, which is also an exact parallel to Micah chapter 4 in the first few verses. But when we drop down in Isaiah 2 to a few verses beyond, um, in relation to that powerful kingdom prophecy, we read this in verse 19 of uh, Isaiah chapter 2. And fear of the Lord, for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake terribly the earth. In that day, a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship. For the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake terribly the earth, cease you from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? And this is repeated twice. God will arise. He will end the term of his silence uh, and make himself known, not simply to the enlightened community in Christ's judgment, but in all the earth. There will be a terrible shaking of the earth. Mankind will be humbled. The earth will be shaved. The glory will be lost. Not minimally, as with we can currently see in this pandemic, where nations and people have reacted in fear of, of disease and that uh, contagiousness of uncleanness. Um, uh, and there is, of course, a very pronounced emphasis on the fragile nature of our lives. But a severe humbling lesson uh, with that shaking of the earth that will inspire a fear of the Creator that is completely absent from our society today. And so sadly, a growing disrespect in the enlightened community for dismissing the fear of God as if it has no legitimate application except a, a mild reverential respect. Very sad. Isaiah 13 defines this earth-shaking experience as the coming of the day of Yahweh when the sun and moon will be darkened. We read in uh, Isaiah 13, picking up at verse 11, And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked of their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. God is going to shake the earth terribly, both physically and politically. We read that a man is going to be more rare than the golden, golden wedge of Ophir. 
when the earth removes out of her place, and God causes the arrogancy of the proud to cease. That declares there's going to be a kind of shaving of the earth. And that seventh day after the earth was defiled by the condemnation of death, resulting directly from that first sin of the first man and woman. The loss of life is going to be very extreme. Currently, there are over 7.5 billion people on the earth today. Our fragile mortality that is being currently emphasized by this pandemic just before the restoration of the kingdom of God is nothing compared to the devastation and humbling of mankind in the seventh day. Just like the shaving of the consecrated head of the Nazarite on the seventh day, following his or her defilement by death. We have entered the stage of the birth pangs prior to the saints being born again in order to inherit the kingdom. This is why God defines the ending of his prophesied term of silence in Isaiah 42 as being like the cries of a charging soldier and the cries of a woman giving birth. This extreme shaking of the earth is repeated in the context of God exalting himself and when the Lord of hosts reigns in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Um, that's the con concluding verse of Isaiah chapter 24. But just a few verses earlier, we read this, uh, picking up at verse 18. And the foundations of the earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean, dissolved like a shaving. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. This severe shaking of the earth the earth being clean, dissolved, meaning the political structure and the way the earth operates and the societal structure. The introduction of the kingdom is like the shaving of the head of the consecration of the Nazarite in the seventh day to learn how on the eighth day they will begin again with a complete uh, separation to God. Now, this unshaven head issue uh, is the fourth point of separation uh, from in the Nazarite ritual. This separation from cutting one's hair uh, and that this head of the Nazarite was the head of his con or her consecration. It's very interesting to note that the Hebrew word translated consecration is Nazar, N-E-Z-E-R, uh, which is also translated crown. And it is the particular Hebrew word used to describe the crown of the high priest. This is uh, Exodus 29, verse 6. And God commands, you shall put a mitre, meaning a, a turban, upon his head. And put the holy crown upon the mitre, upon the head covering, upon the, uh, the turban. 
The word crown here, referring to that golden crown inscribed with holiness to Yahweh on it, that was placed on the top of the head covering, that turban separating the head of the high priest from the golden crown, that word identifying the crown of the high priest is that same word, nazer, an E-Z-E-R, that's translated as consecration in relation to the head of the Nazarite. Again, repeating this emphasis of how this ritual of separation to and from is a pursuit of identification with the high priest. And we see the same components of this fourth point of separation and high priest identification being noted in one of the four rituals of the ecclesial age that are also all about our identification with our high priest, our forever high priest, Jesus Christ. The gender-based ritual of head coverings during prayer or prophesying uh, has these same components of headship, head covering, as in the crown of the high priest and a consecrated head. And if a sister prays, uh, praying prefers to pray without a head covering, that head covering physically recognizing there is a God-appointed headship between her and Christ and God, then like the Nazarite, her head is supposed to be shaved. Just like the Jewish high priest had to have that turban, that head covering between his head and that golden crown, that consecration to God on his head because he was not the true and eternal high priest, but only a helper of the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ. So the sister in the truth today must physically demonstrate the same features of our Creator's righteousness in her pursuit of identification with our forever high priest. Now we want to note more about both the third and fourth points of Nazarite separations from the dead and haircuts. But first, let, let's finish our consideration of the prophetic nature of this ritual when the touch of death defiled the Nazarite. We noted the parallel between the shaving of the hair on the seventh day uh, from defilement, death defilement, being like God cutting off that false crown of arrogance that mankind wears by severely shaking the earth in the seventh day at the introduction of the millennial kingdom. But it is that next day, that eighth day, when the ritual of the Nazarite restores that physical holiness status. Uh, we read that in Numbers 6, and beginning with verse 10. And on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtles, or turtle doves, and two, or two young pigeons to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, and make an atonement for him, for that he sinned by the dead, and shall hallow his head that same day. In other words, that eighth day. And he shall consecrate unto Yahweh the days of his separation, and he shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering, but the days that went before shall be lost, because his separation was defiled. It is the eighth day when the death defiled offers those two fowl of heaven from those two choices of either two turtle doves or two pigeons as the combined offerings for both sin and burnt offerings. This is always the combination for achieving an atonement. Both 
the sin offering and the burnt offering. The sin of a cleansed lep the I'm sorry, the ritual of a cleansed leper takes eight days, with two birds being offered on the eighth day as both a sin offering and a burnt offering. Also for an atonement for being physically unholy and restoring that holiness. The same procedure was required for the physically defiled through having a bodily issue. Once they physically recover, they had to, uh, to uh, go through an eight-day cleansing procedure finalized with offering two birds for a sin offering and a burnt offering for their own atonement to achieve a cleansing to restore their state of physical holiness and acceptability to God. Uh, there, there are a number of lessons involved in this pattern, and they are emphasized in other rituals that highlight that second category of sin, the physical application of sin that bears no guilt whatsoever, no repentance is ever required, but a divine cleansing is absolutely demanded by God with severe consequences for non-compliance. Uh, this is the sin category that is sadly being systematically denied by many in the enlightened community in this generation and preceding generations, and for both separation from and to. It's uh, 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 insisting on unity that this issue has no consequence. It's not important. Truth isn't important. It's more about being one with each other. Uh, that's one. But there was also J.J. Andrews insisting uh, back in the late 1800s, that that second category, sin category wasn't really physical. It was a legal condemnation. Well, a new mother had to offer those two birds, constituting a sin offering and a burnt offering for her own atonement, despite performing a righteous act, having a child. God commanded Adam and Eve and, and, and Noah and his family to bear children, fill the earth. It's an act of righteousness to have a child. Uh, and that's a, what we're told about Mary. Mary uh, had to offer these two birds, a sin offering and a burnt offering in Luke 2, for giving birth to the Son of God for her own atonement. And we see a similar pattern with the atonement procedure for the Christ altar. Remember, I asked you to make a note of that in uh, going back to um, Exodus 29. You shall offer every day a bullock for a sin offering for atonement, and you shall cleanse the altar, the altar burnt offering, when you have made an atonement for it, for this bronze altar, and you shall anoint it, just as Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit, to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar most holy. What's whosoever, whatsoever sorry, touches the altar shall be holy. Well, the Christ altar burnt offering had seven days of sin offerings for cleansing that shadow of our Messiah, that, uh, that altar. And on the eighth day, that altar could be used on behalf of all the people, just as Christ will eliminate death in the eighth day from creation. Um, our primary point in this fairly obvious repetitive pattern is the conclusion on the eighth day, not the seventh day. The Nazarite ritual also demonstrates a restoration of a divinely acceptable uh, physical holiness in the eighth day. This is exactly the divine plan. As we've noted in the past, the frequent inappropriate insistence 
uh, in our community. That God's plan is a 7,000-year plan is very disrespectful to God. He will not fail. If his plan was over in just 7,000 years, then he would be a complete failure. That is very disrespectful to say. It is the eighth millennium from creation, from that physical defilement of death to the sin, when death will be eliminated, when all that is cursed flesh will be cut away in circumcision-like fashion on that eighth day after the conclusion of the millennial kingdom, which only constitutes, it's wonderful, but only a rest from the physical effects of sin in that seventh day. And that's why the, the uh, Greek, these six alphanumeric Greek letters of our Savior's name, uh, Jesus, Iota, Eta, Sigma, Omicron, Upsilon, Sigma, those six alphanumeric Greek letters add up to three-eighths, defining, prophetically defining those three immortalizations in the plan of God, with that third one taking place in the eighth day. God's plan is more than 7,000 years. It is not just a 7,000-year plan. Well, we'll uh, continue uh, this consideration of the Nazarite vow in our next class as we build this foundation for understanding and balancing the issues of separating from and to with our goal of separating ourselves to Yahweh, um, both spiritually and physically, uh, as we will be saved with both a physical body that will be clothed with immortality and will become a spirit nature, born again. Uh, and we're starting to see those birth pangs accelerate at this time because the kingdom is not very far away. Consider these, uh, these lessons in our next class. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.